0: Welcome to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hanson, and each week I'm joined by insightful guests to talk about their written work and how the gospel applies to all of life. Together, we keep looking until we see God working. Wherever you're listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. Back in 2010, you had to search the corners of campus to find the identity synthesis. One decade later, the identity synthesis had become the dominant ideology of countless foundations and corporations, let alone colleges, universities, and the Democratic Party. The takeover of elite culture was complete before you might have even noticed it was happening. Yasha Monk tells this story in his new book, The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time monk is a professor of the practice of international affairs at Johns Hopkins university and a contributing editor at the Atlantic. And he sees in the next decade, a battle of ideas and power with enormous consequences. Uh, he writes this quote, what is at stake is no more or less than the basic rules principles and background assumptions that will structure our societies in the coming decades end quote. So, What is the identity synthesis? Well, it's an account of social power according to various identity groups. According to Monk, it threatens our stability, solidarity, and social justice. In other words, it's a trap. And he explains it this way, quote, The lure that attracts so many people to the identity synthesis is, is a desire to overcome persistent injustices and create a society of genuine equals. But the likely outcome of implementing this ideology is a society in which an unremitting emphasis on our differences pits rigid identity groups against each other in a zero-sum battle for resources and recognition. A a society in which all of us are, whether we want to or not, forced to define ourselves by the groups into which we happen to be born." Now, I appreciate how Monk explains, you're not woke if you say that minority groups are sometimes treated unfairly and that we should fight against such injustice in our society. He shows how in left-leaning institutions, it became nearly impossible to criticize the identity synthesis without being accused of support for President Donald Trump. Now, as many v- listeners and viewers of Gospel Bound, you know, these, de- these debates have likewise roiled churches in the last decade, and that's why I wanted to interview Monk to give some outsider's perspective that could add light to all the heat in our disagreements among Christians. So he joins me now on Gospel Bound to discuss why he speaks out from inside elite culture, the October 7th attacks, free speech, universal values and more. Yasha, thanks for joining me on Gospel Bound.
1: Thank you so much for this generous introduction and thank you for having me.
0: Let's <laughs> we'll start with a basic illustrative question about the identity synthesis. Why would someone who wants to join a feminist movement committed to intersectionality need to support the Palestinian cause against Israel?
1: Well, that's a, a question that has become more topical since mm-hmm. I uh, wrote my book. Um, uh, there is a basic logic here which says that uh, different kinds of forms of oppression might be interrelated, um, that if you are a, uh, a Latina lesbian, um, you might be discriminated against on the base of being Latino, but you might also be discriminated against on the basis of being a lesbian. And so to fully live as an equal part of society, we have to overcome both of those quote-unquote intersectional forms of injustice. And so the idea then becomes that uh, in order to be an activist in good standing in any one cause, you have to really fight against all causes at the same time. And not only do you have to fight against all causes at the same time, but because you can't really understand, supposedly the experiences of people who are different from you, the challenges that people who are different from you face, especially if they're more oppressed than you. You also have to delegate your judgment about what the solidarity entails to members of these other groups. So you're somebody who's really motivated by feminism. Well, you should listen to environmentalists about what kind of environmental policies you should uh, prefer. And you should listen to people who are transgender about what kind of... Uh, uh, policies would lead to true trans inclusion. And um, you should listen to Palestinians about what the right policy in the Middle East is. This is the sort of basic logic of intersectionality um, that has become really influential in in activist circles in the last uh, decade or two.
0: And a good description of what you lay out in terms of so many dimensions of the identity synthesis. Now, why did you decide to speak out? Because you hold to a number of left wing convictions and you write about the cost of dissent in really religious terminology, a new identity an ident- a new identity orthodoxy with sanctified intolerance of disagreement. Have you faced retribution for speaking out? Um, yes and no. I mean, um, uh,
1: you know, I made my case uh, respectfully. Um, I I try to claim a moral high ground. I'm arguing for these ideas, because I think that they're required to make the world a better place. Um, And I think a little bit of that spirit of earnest engagement. Um, communicates itself. I'm not interested in alienating people or in sort of provoking them to the maximal degree. And I think even my colleagues or friends who deeply disagree with me um, uh, respect that um, and and respond to that. Um, But certainly um, it's uncomfortable to be a member of various institutions in which the assumption is that you agree with these ideas. uh, And often the insinuation is that everybody who disagrees with these ideas might somehow be well, at least intellectually defective and probably morally defective, probably right. a bad uh, person. Um, and, of course, I've been lucky. There's others who um, have also argued in good faith for perfectly reasonable positions who have experienced much worse consequences. So there's always this outside risk that no matter how sensibly and reasonably you stand up for your ideas, somebody might decide to to gun for your head. Um uh, but I, I think it's important to, to strike the balance here between recognizing the ways in which quote unquote council culture really does pervade our society and our institutions, and the reasons why that is a real denigration of the kinds of freedoms that uh, we should be defending, um, but also a resistance to overstating the case. Because if we overstate the case, then nobody is going to want to actually speak up for their ideas. Then it becomes easy to be defeatist. And I do think that um, if you think hard about these issues and uh, push back against these orthodoxies, even in pretty mainstream institutions, you can get a hearing if you do it in the right way. And I, I hope that my book, The Identity Trap, helps to empower people to do that.
0: It seems like the identity synthesis probably grows stronger the less people speak out and the more fearful they are. Would you say that's also the case?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, if people, you know, become convinced that any disagreement with his ideology is definitely going to lead to the end of your career, well they they'd, <laughs> they'd be smart to shut up, right? So yeah. so I think it's it's important to to certainly recognize how illiberal this moment is, how unfair it is that many decent people have been scapegoated for disagreeing with certain ideas. Um Uh, how much work we have to do to uh, create not just legal protections for free speech in the form of a First Amendment, but a genuine culture of free speech where people actually feel empowered to speak up for their views. I believe very, very strongly about all of those things, but we shouldn't exaggerate them to the extent where we're basically telling people to be defeatist.
0: Have you found a way to be able to convince your students and younger adults about the values of free speech? Because that's been a a really discouraging long-term movement of the last, say, 10 to 15 years against the value of free speech among young adults, especially in places like university settings?
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, <clears throat> you know, I, I'm not a propagandist in the classroom, right? I don't go into the classroom uh, trying to convince my students of my political point of view. What I do want to make sure is that they actually have considered the issues and that they have access to the best uh, uh, readings, the best arguments, on different sides of these debates. Um, And that often has a big impact in itself. I mean, I found that sort of four or five years ago, there was a wave of uh, quite, well, for lack of a better term, fanatical quote-unquote woke students, you know, students who really thought, this is my ideology, this is my challenge to the world of adults. I'm, you know, a foot soldier in uh, the revolution that's going to lead this ideology to triumph. I'm struck by the way in which that has changed relatively quickly. Um in really? part when of these ideas.
0: So well, when? When did when did you start to see that change? In
1: in, in the last few years. And I think part of oh. the reason for this is that these ideas have gone from being the sort of credo of radical campus activists to Just the operating system of many mainstream American institutions, especially in the educational sector, especially in high schools and middle schools and elementary schools, so quickly that the students who I teach now, you know, they believe this stuff just because they've always been taught to believe this stuff. But they're not ideologues. You know, there's a sort of, well, the adults tell me that this is how I should think, and I Mm. guess this is how I think, right? But as a result, they're actually open to having uh, serious conversations about these subjects. And and I do find that when I teach a week on free speech, for example, um, they've never considered some of the basic arguments for free speech. And when they hear them, that makes a difference, because those are compelling arguments to say, look, okay, so we're going to censor people, well, who's going to be doing the censoring? Isn't it going to be the dominant in society, the powerful in society who are most likely to be in a position to censor? And if they can censor, you know, things you don't like, but what virtue are going to be able to defend yourself, but what argument are going to be able to defend themselves, yourself if they want to censor you. These are very basic arguments, but the arguments that actually uh, many schools fail to teach. And so when students are exposed to them, they say, oh, hang on a second, perhaps this isn't quite so simple as I thought either. And another example that I write about in the book, but that I also teach in a classroom is cultural appropriation. Virtually all of my students come in thinking that anything you might call cultural appropriation is a bad thing. But when you explain to them a little bit about um, how central cultural exchange has been to the development of culture in the past, how hard it is to actually figure out which group owns what artifact or cultural (laughs) product and how we're going to enforce those boundaries and how easy it is for that to lead to absurd situations where you're basically applying racial purity tests to people and so on, that really has an impact on students and they do often change their mind.
0: Hmm. it's good to know the power of education almost catechesis in some ways we just can't take for granted that people have ever even heard the free speech argument that's that's really helpful to hear there uh, briefly explain yasha the, the shift from class and economics to culture and identity on the left and is there a particular historical turning point that you can identify
1: yeah i mean i think there's a, there's a few different historical developments that have contributed to that i mean one is that for um, a century, the Soviet Union was, in a sense, the lodestar of the left, right. even for parts of the left, of course, who was critical of Stalinism and critical of the Soviet Union. Um, this was the most powerful, about the left-wing regime in the world, and it had very much an, a self-understanding as being based in economics, um, uh, as trying to ensure that the workers of the world would supposedly unite, right? Um. I think as the Soviet Union lost... Uh, first its legitimacy and its intellectual hold, uh, and then actually crumbled physically, um, that led to a real period of disorientation on the left. And that allowed a few more long-standing movements based around identity, which have always existed on the left but used to be quite marginal to the left, uh, to step in and fill the void. And so it was really in the 1990s and early 2000s that left-wing politics came to be more about cultural issues than it was about economic
0: issues. Well, let's talk about one of those cultural issues, especially race. And several times in the book, you you point out the same contradiction, that on the one hand, race is a social construct, and on the other hand, quote unquote, people of color have certain inherent qualities. Why do you see this point as so important to expose in contemporary discourse?
1: Yeah, because I think it really goes to a confusion in the contemporary left and a confusion in our contemporary thinking about uh, the role of identity more broadly. Um, So, uh, you know, when I tell the history of where these ideas come from, I start with Michel Foucault and the postmodernists, who are very skeptical about all kinds of things in a way that I think is overstated, but can be intellectually interesting, can even be charming, um, uh, to really you know, put everything to the test and say, can we rely on our basic categories for understanding the world? And one of the ways in which we are quite skeptical is about the utility of identity categories. So Michel Foucault, in our terminology, is a homosexual, a gay man, a man who had sex with men, but he disliked that term, that label, because he thought that um, actually uh, the variety of sexual experience is so wide that uh, saying, you know, you can just split the world into homosexuals and heterosexuals is far too simplistic. So that gives you a flavor of a way in which these postmodernists were actually very worried about uh, identity labels. Um, The thinkers that uh, uh, Foucault and other postmodernists inspired um, liked the tool to question everything, to take down society, to get rid of the idea of universal truth. Um, But they also want to repoliticize it. They're worried that Foucault's ideas would not make for enough concrete politics. And so they said, um, particularly in the form of an Indian literary critic called Gayatri Spivak, um, well, um, you know, perhaps philosophically speaking, Foucault is right that uh, these essentialist notions of identity like homosexual are too simplistic, are misleading. But for practical political purposes – it's really important to be able to speak on behalf of these marginalized identity groups. Um, yeah. You know, Foucault once said that the white workers in Paris can speak for themselves. Um, Spivak said, well, the subaltern, the poorest people in places like Calcutta, where she grew up, they can't speak yeah. for themselves. They don't have the resources and the education and the respect to speak for themselves. Somebody has to speak for them. But to do that, we need to reinvent these identity categories. And so what Spivak ends up uh, uh, proposing is the idea of strategic essentialism. But for strategic purposes, we have to pretend that these essentialist notions of identity, what we know to be wrong, are actually right. Um, and you see the inheritance of that in uh, left-wing activism today, right? You go to an activist space today and people will say, well, race is a social construct. A um, claim it, broadly speaking, I agree with But in the next breath, we're going to go on to say, you know, we have to listen to what brown and black people want. You know, people of color are this, whereas white people are that. Right? They start to use exactly those essential identity categories after acknowledging that they're overly simplistic um, and end up uh, uh, misleading our understanding of the world.
0: Uh, Staying on this theme, Yasha, six years ago, I don't think I'd ever heard anything about critical race theory. Um, my education came before that. I was working in, in history and literature before I think that was, became a pretty dominant theme in much of that. Um, now it's practically a household term, certainly, among, certainly on the right, but not really sure how well the concept is understood. So is critical race theory, is it a real problem or is it just a conservative uh, boogeyman?
1: Um, in the form that it's sometimes talked about, it may be a boogeyman, but I think it is uh, a real and very influential ideology. But it's interesting and worth understanding, but ultimately uh, wrong-headed. Um, so, uh, you know, I do think that some people on the right who sort of dismiss any form of thinking through the very real problem of race in the United States as critical race theory. So when you want to teach about slavery in schools or you want to study the ways in which, uh, you know, a job applicant may still face discrimination today, they say, well, that's critical race theory, right? But as a result, big parts of the left have taken on uh, an an understanding of critical race theory that the founders of it would reject wholesale as just, you know, critical race theory is wanting to think critically about the role that race plays in our society. What could be wrong with that? Well, of course, that, that I'm in favor of. But so when you go back to what critical race theory has actually been since its founding, it's a much more radical, much more extreme ideology um, that in many ways set itself up explicitly in opposition to the civil rights movement. So Derek Bell, um, widely acknowledged as the most influential figure within critical race theory, um, did great work working for the NAACP, helping to desegregate schools in the American South, but then came to think of that work as, in many ways, being a mistake. Starting to suggest that perhaps uh, we should have, uh, instead of Brown Board of Education, gone through uh, uh, reforms that would create schools that were separate but truly equal. Um, he marked the civil rights movement. Uh, "We Shall Overcome," the famous song he wrote off as sort of civil rights era kitsch. And he said we have to overcome the defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement. And so um, the ways in which he differed from it was a rejection of the possibility of progress within universalist institutions, Um, the idea that there's a permanence of racism in the United States, that racism in the year 2000 may have been less obvious or visible than in 1950 or 1850, but it was just as bad, just as strong. Um, And therefore the insistence that how we treat people should come to depend more, not less, on the race, that we need to explicitly uh, give a form of preferential treatment to members of minority groups in order to overcome racism, that treating people as equals is not the way to create a more fair society. Um, and those ideas have then been adopted in, in popularized in sometimes vulgarized forms, right, in, in, in less sophisticated versions in the mainstream, whether you're thinking of a work of best-selling authors like Ibram X. Kendi or Robin right. De'Angelo or whether you think of the rise of racial affinity groups in many schools around the United States, often as of the earliest elementary school. Those are, uh, uh, in a real way, descendants of critical race theory, even if uh, many of uh, the exercises that pedagogues have adopted or these best-selling works are certainly less sophisticated than the ideas introduced by somebody like uh, Derek Bell.
0: Now, do you see October 7th as a turning point in your work? You mentioned earlier that your book was written before that, of course, and published before that. Certainly, I I read it afterward, and I'd looked forward to the book. I knew about the book, but it felt like it had a certain weight and a certain timeliness after October 7th. And and that's not even jumping then to the congressional hearings and subsequent Ivy League resignations. Um, now, do you think that all of that shows that the concerns that you raise in the in your book have actually, perhaps, reached a critical mass audience? Not necessarily just through your book, but but more broadly, it's sort of of hit a hit a moment.
1: I I, I think so, and perhaps I hope so. Um, you know, I was struck in the first weeks of doing interviews about this book, especially with more left-leaning uh, publications. The question was always, well, why should this stuff matter? And perhaps you're right, mm. but isn't this just fringe? And isn't the real threat Donald Trump really? and so on? By the way, I'm very worried about uh, Donald Trump. Right, um, right. But, um, uh, but, 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 but you know, you can walk and chew gun at the same time, but it might be two things <laughs> to be seriously worried about in a country at the same time. But that argument... I mean, I, I you know, I, I could make the argument, but I could see that there was some resistance to it. After October 7th, I was asked the question far less often, because I think people recognized wow. um, that there was something seriously amiss in the parts of the left that seemed to celebrate that terrorist attack. Um, and, uh, you know, the two things are deeply linked um, when it comes to the view of October 7th. Um, you know this derives from some of these concepts we've been talking about, from the idea that you can split the world into whites and people of color, into colonizers and colonized, and that then everybody has an obligation uh, to uh, uh, stand in solidarity with uh, any other cause that is uh, uh, supposed to be an exercise of social justice. And you apply that to Israel, and you wrongly say that um, uh, you know Israelis are all white. Uh, even for many of them are Mizrahi Jews who um, right. don't have any obviously different skin color from Palestinians. You say that all colonizers, even for many of them, in fact, a plurality of Jews in Israel today have been expelled from Middle Eastern countries over the course of the last 75 or 80 years because of being Jews and had nowhere else to go. So that doesn't sound like settler like colonialists. Um, and then you say, well, again, if you want to be a good environmentalist, if you want to be a good feminist, if you want to be a good trans activist, you also have to stand in solidarity with Palestine. So it really helps to explain that original set of uh, reactions. And the same, of course, is true of the failures of these elite universities, um, including places like Harvard. They have given up on universal values and neutral rules over the course of the last years. They no longer stood up for free speech when, for example, they allowed a faculty member at Harvard to be bullied off campus for saying uh, publicly that, According to her, the two biological sexes, men and women. Um, they started to pronounce on every issue in the world in emails from the president uh, saying why the Supreme Court is wrong about this and why that jury trial came to right. the wrong conclusion and uh, you know why we should have a particular view that I happen to agree with uh, on the war in Ukraine and so on. And so then these institutions uh, didn't send out a similar email after October 7th because suddenly the campus community right. was... Uh, conflicted. Um, and then they went in front of Congress and said, you know, the reason why we wouldn't, for example, be able to punish course for the genocide of Jews is that we care so much about free speech. Well, um,
0: right.
1: you know, I'm fine with university president not sending an email after October 7th. I don't need my university president to tell me what they think about the world, <laughs> right. right? I'm fine with a very broad understanding of free speech that wouldn't cover disrupting lectures and intimidating individuals, all kinds of things that happened in the last months, but that would cover very offensive statements. Um, but you have to be consistent. And what people saw was universities that are hypocritical, that are happy to opine about one set of issues, but not about the Hamas terror attacks, That are happy to restrict freedom of speech for people um, who uh, flout progressive orthodoxies, but uh, make apologies for anti-Semites. And so uh, that, I think, again, brought out the importance of the themes um, that I've been writing about in the identity trap.
0: I want to talk a little bit about the importance and the significance of Jewish writers and Jewish experiences in particular on these subjects. I started to notice around October 7th, it wasn't because of that, but almost every book I was reading at the time was by a Jewish writer, and these Jewish writers tended to have what I found to be an uncommon insight into our era. And I think for me, it also goes It goes way back... Um, you know, Saul Morrison in, in college was one of my my professors on Russian literature. Peter Hayes was my um, my thesis advisor in history on the Holocaust. Um, so maybe I had just had more of that background. Jonathan Haidt has been a frequent guest. He'll be coming back on this show to talk about the anxious generation. It seems to me Which I that... I haven't
1: yet read, but um, <laughs> I've talked to John about it, and it'll be a really important book, so...
0: Just, I, I, I think, one of the absolute most critical thinkers of our era, and... And one of the things that's unique about about Jonathan is that he he's uniquely insightful on many issues, Mm. including the issues that we're talking about here. But but, you know, his his work is so, so powerful in so many different ways. But I'm wondering if it's precisely because of the issues that you've raised in this book, because of all people, Jews and Israelis as distinct but also overlapping groups, blow up the entire oppressor oppressed colonizer colonized dynamic because they just don't fit the categories when when people try to get them to fit the categories it just doesn't work it seems to expose the fundamental flaw do you think i'm on something there or not
1: yeah i think so so part of this sort of uh y- problem with the identity synthesis is that it just wants to cast the whole world in these incredibly Manichean ways. Um, yeah. You know, you're either a white person or you're a person of color. And if you're right. white, then you must be privileged um, and probably somehow historically guilty. And if you're a person of color, then you must be beyond reproach and oppressed. And of course, the world is more complicated than that. Right. Uh, Jews uh, who are of uh, Ashkenazi origin are, I suppose, white when I walk down the street, I suppose I read as a white person in the United States. And yet, per capita, there's actually most hate crimes against Jews in the United States. And it so happens that my ancestors were murdered in the Holocaust, but I grew up in Germany in perfectly comfortable, but somewhat complicated circumstances. Um, So, uh, you know, I'm skeptical of the entire attempt to say if you're white you're privileged but it's particularly silly for uh jews who have experienced so much historical disadvantage and so i think that is one reason i guess i would add another reason which is that um you know jews in so many different places have turned out to be a very vulnerable minority group um and so uh you know i think that not all jews of course um, uh, and there's Jewish communists and Jewish fascists and uh, you know Jews of every political uh, um, uh, direction. Yeah. The famous joke is that um, uh, you know when a Jew washed up on a desert island, uh, he built two synagogues. And he, you know when he was discovered, they said, "Why on earth two synagogues?" And he said, well, "That synagogue, I would never go there." Right. So it's obviously a, a group of people who have um, a very broad range of views. But I do think that a lot of Jews recognize that uh, universalist institutions, institutions that say, you're going to be treated not on the basis of a group you're a part of, not on the basis of your identity, not on the basis of whether you're part of a club, not on the basis of your skin color, not on the basis of whether you go to the same church or temple, but you're going to be judged as an individual based on your achievements, based on what you can contribute, um, based on your character. Um, that those have been best at keeping the peace and creating prosperity for everybody, but also, of course, uh, at allowing Jews to flourish. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that Jews are among those who uh, defend universalism against the identity trap. But one of the things that I actually point out in the book, and that's really important to me, is that uh, I'm ultimately optimistic about fighting back against the identity trap because Jews aren't alone in having their own specific reasons to hold on to those yeah. values. Um, you know, Christians come from a tradition uh, that has emphasized, a little bit in the Old Testament, but, but again and again in the New Testament as well. And I, I don't know much about the New Testament, but I know that much. Um, that you're not defined by whether you are, uh, uh, ethnically speaking, a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're from this tribe or from that tribe, but rather you're defined by the fact that you are made in the likeness of God and that you have a soul, uh, and that in that sense, we're all brethren. Um, and so I think Christians have reasons of their own to resist an ideology that wants to say the group you're born into is really what defines you. And the same, by the way, is true of Baha'is and uh, Buddhists and uh, and different political tribes. I think conservatives have reasons of their own to be skeptical of this ideology, but so actually have Marxists. So there's all kinds right. of different uh, uh, deep religions and ideologies that stand in direct contrast with this set of identitarian ideas. And, and that's one of the things that gives me hope.
0: Well, let's close on that because that's exactly where I wanted to go. You, you allude to this at the toward the end of your book. Again, we're talking with Yasha Monk about the identity trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. And uh, you alluded to the civil rights movement, Dr. King in there that was explicitly built off universal moral values. Um, that were rooted in his Christian understanding, very sharp contrast, of course, to the Black Muslim experience and perspective of Malcolm X, Elijah Muhammad, and others. Um, uh, universal moral values, which again you, you commend in your book for the sake of liberal democracy, liberal there would just mean our Western political culture, going back to the American Revolution. They depend a great deal on what we find. You mention it right there, the Hebrew Bible, and then also especially the New Testament, and yet of course, we know that religion is in major decline across the West. Now, one of the major things that I argue in my work here in Gospel Bound and, and elsewhere is that I don't think you can keep the universal values without the religion. Now, I don't think I'm alone in that. and Hersia Lee in her conversion, she identified the same thing, Tom Holland in the UK. I think other prominent teachers of history and culture would, would share that same view. What's your view on that The relationship between religion and these universal moral values? Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, that's interesting. So I, I, I think I would disagree with you on the theoretical level, um, but I have a lot of sympathy for that position on the practical level. Which is so like the American that,
0: founders, that's kind of the American founders view. Some that's of them, true, least. I guess. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> I, you know, I do think that the basic arguments for why we should uh, maintain a Um, democratic republic, or as political scientists might say, a liberal democracy, um, a system of government that protects um, uh, individual freedom, collective self-determination, and uh, the maxim that everybody be treated equally, irrespective of the kind of group into which they are born, um, it can be derived from political principles, can be derived from historical experience. Um, They both provide the best and most fair answer to the perennial political question of who should rule, and they have proven themselves to be incredibly efficacious in creating uh, societies that allow people to lead worthwhile lives. If you look today at the richest countries in the world, at the countries with the highest human development index, at the countries that score best on individual freedoms, and the countries that most people around the world would want to immigrate to, um, Uh, the vast majority of those societies are in fact liberal democracies and that's not a coincidence, I think. So I think that there's strong arguments um, both at the theoretical level and at the um, uh, just um, sort of uh, instrumental level um, for for these political systems and they don't need to rest on uh, religious tradition. Um, In fact, if we want the 21st century to be safe for liberal democracy, we need people in very, very different kinds of cultural contexts to embrace those ideas. The fight for the future of liberalism is the fight to make sure that in Nigeria and India and perhaps one day in China, people come to embrace some of these ideas. Now, having said that, where I agree with you is that loss of religiosity, um, uh, secularization in many countries has turned out to be harmful rather than beneficial to our societies. Um, As somebody who's not myself religious, I would have thought when I was 18 or 20 that religion inspires a lot of what's bad in the world, a lot of fights and wars and battles. I mean, if only all of us would become more secular, doesn't mean you have to be atheist, but, but, you know, more secular, less less deeply devout, that would allow us to overcome those kinds of fights. Well, I've become skeptical about that because actually the tendency to divide into an in-group and an outgroup goes well beyond religion. When religion isn't around to provide those lines, it can be other things like race, which uh, can actually be even more damaging. And more broadly, we've seen that in a society like the United States, where many people have dropped out of uh, established religious institutions, they have either made up their own individual theology that often involves right. um, all kinds of crazy beliefs, not just crazy religious beliefs, but crazy political <laughs> beliefs, Sure. And often they've just lost social connection and social trust rather than having a community to go and spend a Sunday or a Saturday or Friday with, um, uh, where you have somebody looking out for you. You have somebody who notices if you don't show up one week. Um, you have people of different political persuasions and perhaps different social standings uh, with whom you're in a community. Um, you sit at home in your basement and you watch cable news and you get angry at the world. Um I- and that, I think, has helped to explain a lot of the sense of America is not quite functioning, not quite working, but I have at, at the moment. So in those concrete ways, I certainly yeah. share with you the fear that this sort of ongoing process of secularization in America has done more harm than good.
0: Yeah, I completely, completely agree there. And I think when you when you look at the work of Tom Holland, you look at some of the historical, uh, cultural anthropology anthropology and evolutionary work of Joe Henrich at Harvard. I, I think a lot of what you see there is this navigation of so much of this, of these universal principles that we've inherited come out of a Judeo-Christian and especially, you know, Christian nations historically, but those Christian nations that have secularized for a number of reasons, especially in the United States post-Internet. We didn't get a chance to get into what you you write about here about the role of the Internet, but that's a substantial a substantial factor in what we're talking about here. But I think that's a lot of the, the big question that, that is that is across the West today. Can universal values be protected that have guided our society if a decreasing number of members of our society can remember where they came from or observe them? Um, and I think some of the concern we have with the younger generations is that they're it's kind of what you were saying earlier about the catechesis of free speech, you can't take it for granted. I wonder about that as well with our society, especially becoming more secular. But I'll give you the last word if you want it. But otherwise, I'll just tell people to go buy your book. What do you think? <laughs> go buy my book for sure and, and you know, <laughs> give it to your you know, in-laws. And um,
1: uh, well, I, I, I will just say that I think it is always hard to make an affirmative case for these values because they seem abstract and procedural to people yeah. in many contexts. Mm-hmm. Um, But I do think that Americans, um, including young Americans, um, have deeply philosophically liberal instincts. And I think that uh, they come out when they see something illiberal happening. So it's not that they have a formulated abstract commitment to these ideals that they're able to go and uh, explain and formulate and apply consistently. But when people are scapegoated, when they are punished in ways that are unfair, when oh. uh, people are treated not as individuals but simply on the basis of of their belonging in a particular group, mm-hmm. I do think a lot of Americans say, ah, something about that bothers me. I can't quite explain what it is. Perhaps I'm not going yeah. to put it very eloquently, but you know what? That doesn't seem right. Um, and and in that sense, I would have uh, faith in, in 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 the enduring power of this creed. Um, And that's ultimately the argument of the book, that we can take injustices seriously, we can have an honest view of our society, we can embrace, of course, a society that has become deeply diverse and is continuing to become more diverse and uh, see the beauty and the value in that, but at the same time reject this set of ideas which claims that you're defined by the group you're part of. You can't understand people who are different from you. We have to give up on universal values and neutral rules in order to turn the whole world into a zero-sum conflict between competing tribes. That is not the way to create a more thriving, fair, successful, appealing society. You have to stand up for the values of uh, humanism, of liberalism, of uh, our constitutional republic.
0: That's a great place to stop and I hope that comes out r- loud and through loud and clear to people. Because that's exactly what your book argues, that if people who have listened and watched me over the years, they know how much I care about living out the, the Bible's vision for social justice, for for lifting up minority groups that have suffered at the hands, in, in many cases, by Christians, whether that's African Americans or Jews um, in many different places. So I think everybody knows that if they've watched me and listened to me over the years, but to understand that your book really helps us to see that these movements actually undermine that effort. They actually make it more difficult for people who care about that. So for more very good conversations, <laughs> uh, you know, to stimulate your, your hard conversations with people, um, I recommend Yasha Monk's The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time. Yasha, thanks for joining me on Gospel Bound.
1: Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound. For more interviews and to sign up for my newsletter, head over to tgc.org gospelbound. Rate and review Gospel Bound on your favorite podcast platform so others can join the conversation. Until next time, remember, when we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope.